of my former professors, uh, Dr. Roseanne Welch. Thanks Hello. For, thanks for coming all the way to San Bernardino today. Hey, I always love to talk to students about what's going on in the world and how to get better. So I want to start with how you went from Ohio to Hollywood. <laughs> um, a friend of mine does career counseling, and she says there's two kinds of careers. One is the step-by-step, step, you follow a, a, a stair step, and you, I want to do this, and I learn this, and I move, and I move, and move. And the other is like this, this spiral staircase where you gain some things, and you don't like that job, and you take some skills and move into the next one. And doctors are the stair step, and creative people are usually the spiral, but I'm weirdly the stair step because at six I was going to write television when I grew up. And how do you do that from Cleveland? Like, you don't. Um, so I went to college, like everybody should. And even then it was like, none of this is getting me there. I don't quite know what to do except move here. And yeah. um, the joke is that I, um, the gentleman who I came here with today, my husband, we were in college together in theater. And when he proposed, I said, could you move to L.A.? And he was like, sure, why not? So we literally got married. And the day after the gig for the people in our bridal party was to come to my house and load up this Hertz Penske truck full of all the leftover furniture that all my relatives said, oh, here's a coffee table, here's a chair, here's whatever, that I'd been sacking away for like the last six months. And then we drove six days to L.A. in this big old 18 wheel truck thing that luckily he could drive. Um, <laughs> when we rented, they were like, oh, yeah, we'll give you a, an automatic. And because I can't, I w couldn't drive a standard right. then. Um, and then the day we showed up, I was like, oh, all those are gone. We only have the standard. And it was like, well, that means you have to drive the whole way. And he was like, well, that's okay. I've driven trucks before. I can do it. So we drove out here knowing nobody. Um, we'd rented an apartment through, I had to go to, this is before the internet existed. Um, I had to go to the Cleveland Library and get the Los Angeles Times and look at the rental. <laughs> and it was two weeks behind. It was on those long sticks, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yep, yep. Right. And uh, and had to call long distance and pay for it to talk to people to see if we could rent a place. And so we rented a place uh, that was, oh, you'll die at how cheap it was. It was literally like 500 a month plus 15 bucks to rent the refrigerator. <sighs> and they gave you, if you paid for the security, you got the second month free. Wow. And we knew that I was a high school teacher then. That was what I got my degree in because you have to have a thing you can really do if you don't know what else you're going to do. And I taught for a year. Uh, and so then I got in a teaching job out here over the phone because I worked at a Catholic school. And so one nun could call another nun and go, yeah, she's cool. You can hire her without like <laughs> being like in an in-person interview. Right. So I was like, but you needed a day job. You and I were talking about that before. You had to have a day job yeah. when you didn't know what else to do. So I had that, but it wasn't going to start till August. And we showed up in July in the middle of a heat wave um, in a truck that had no air conditioning. Because who, who thought you needed it? Like, oh, that won't be a problem. And yeah. Test the marriage right away. Oh, my God. Yeah. We <laughs> said if we survive this, we'll, and it's been 35 years. So I guess we survived. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it was ridiculous. But I knew we couldn't, we wouldn't have a money in the second month to pay for anything until a paycheck came through. Yeah. So it was like the perfect apartment, except it wasn't. But we survived. Yeah. <laughs> so you're teaching high school, and then what? Um, what led to kind of your first inroads into the biz? I took night classes at AFI because I was like, I need to learn how this business operates. And the gentleman who was teaching a class on pitching was like, well, you want to be in the business, you have to be in the business. You don't teach high school by day and get hired to write TV at night. That doesn't work. How much were the classes at AFI at the time? It couldn't have been very much because I yeah. did not have a lot of cash. Right. Um, yeah, I have no idea. Okay, so he says go in the business. Go in the business. Out. So I had taught in this little lovely Catholic school in uh, downtown LA for a year. 
And then I applied to all the ads I found in Variety. And I got hired at the Stephen Cannell Company. He had eight shows on the air right then. He was like the biggest independent TV producer there was uh, to be a receptionist. And I was like, but I have a degree as a teacher. And now I'm going to like give all of that up and sit in a room all day and go, good morning, Stephen Cannell Productions. Can I help you? Good morning, Stephen Cannell Productions. Good morning, Stephen. I would be at my house at night going, hi, ki- uh, no, it's my, my hi, who's calling? <laughs> so you get yeah. like it becomes your mantra. Um, but it was in the business. And it was a really lovely six-story building on the corner of Hollywood and La Brea, which now is a WeWork place, and Lord knows what it'll be now. That's WeWork, doesn't it? Right, right, right. <laughs> um, but it was, I was on the first floor. There were six floors of receptionists. And so that's on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Right. So what would happen is people who were tourists would be walking by and go, oh, Stephen Cannell. And they'd walk in and they'd want to ask me. At the time, a big show was Hunter, which starred Fred Dreyer, who was this former yes, football player. Same, yeah. uh, and they'd come in and they wanted to know his underwear size because they wanted to buy him some and mail it to him. <laughs> and you'd be like, and there was a button under my desk that was, there was a security guard in the hallway. And yeah. that was the, in case some crazy person showed up, you press the button and they would wander in gently and go, right. hey, Roseanne, what's going on? Can I get you a coffee? And, you know, then they'd right. get rid of anybody. But it was an interesting, I got to meet all the people who ran the different shows. Each floor was a different show. And the point was, somebody somewhere is going to need a writer's assistant. And so this is the way to get to meet people who can hire you. Right. So you're just putting yourself in the right spot, hopefully, at the right time. Exactly. And that was the right time because about six or eight months later, there was a huge writer's strike. It was one of the biggest ones we ever had. It was out for about eight months. And the only people that didn't get fired were the receptionists because somebody had to pick up the phone and go, no, I'm sorry, he's not in his office right now. Here's his home number. No, I'm sorry, they, they aren't working right this time, but here's a way to contact. Here's their agent's number. So we were the only people in the building who kept working. And then when the whole thing was finally over, many of the writer's assistants had gone to get other jobs because they had to. Yeah. And there was this flood of, we need to hire people. Hey, you guys want to interview? And I was like, what do you think I've been sitting here all these years? Right, because I want to be a receptionist for 35 years. For the rest of my life, exactly. So I got hired on um, 21 Jump Street. Uh, So you started as a writer's assistant there, and then did you start doing pilots or episodes (sighs) for them? No, because there was definitely, thankfully it's not as much, but still could exist. There was a real line, girls answer the phone, boys wrote TV. Uh. Uh, especially in a house that was full of action shows, full of yeah. guys writing them. Right. So I would sit there. I had an Apple IIc, which is not a portable computer, but it was <laughs> a computer, and I would bring it and write my own spec scripts. The thing was a beast. <laughs> it was a beast, but you know, I had to yeah. like, prove that right. I was serious. Right. Yeah. You know, there were there were still chicks who were watching um, catalogs all day yeah. while they waited to do stuff and right. figure out what stuff they were going to buy. And I was like, that is not the reputation that is going to get you anywhere. And they're like, it's going to get me a husband. And I was like, oh, my God. Yeah, right. So I brought in my computer so I could be different and yeah. show what I was doing. And, you know, every now and then somebody would ask me. But it was not a place that was going to do that. They were just then um, insisting that each show had at least one female writer. But these were chicks who were coming from someplace else who already had writing gigs. Yeah. Right? So I wasn't going to get anywhere there. And I had to figure that out. Yeah. Um, and when I figured it out, it's like, okay, now I have to leave this job and go to another show. So I was a writer's assistant for probably three or four years. Yeah. Going from show to show. Because the other trick would be you'd get on a show – and they loved you, and they're like, oh, my God, we'll give you a script in our second season. <laughs> and they'd get canceled. <laughs> I mean, and you were like, no. And, and it was no fault of your own, just no audience, right? I mean, yeah. I was on Alien Nation, which was Kenny Johnson, who had done The Bionic Woman and v, uh, v and The Incredible Hulk, which was the first successful on-television um, superhero show. 
That That's true. It's Incredible Hulk that ran for five years. That is true. Um, With the sad Bill Bixby walking yeah. away music. Yes. 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 You're basically describing my so it's your just childhood. It, my childhood was Stephen Cannell because of the A Team. Yes. And my brother and I used to crack up at the outro on his shows because it's him typing and then he throw yes. the paper over like yes. that guy just seems like the coolest dude in the world. Yep. Uh, and then yeah, the Incredible Hulk. I mean yeah. just. Yep. Well, the cute thing about the channel that was his um, outro, which you can see on YouTube now, the there was a show called Castle, which ended a few years ago. Yeah. He was not part of that. He was long retired by that point. But most of the people who worked on that show were from, they'd gotten their training at the Cannell Studios. And when he died, the ending of that week's episode was him. The old school. Was his thing. Yeah. And you suddenly were like, wait, that's not, doesn't fit the show. And as you were just registering this is wrong on top of the screen they printed like mentor yeah teacher friend and yeah it was just like made you cry because he was a writer's studio yeah no i was just thinking about that because of obviously looking through your your background too because uh, i'm just a big sports junkie so i always like i drive i probably drive some of my students crazy with this because i'm always comparing the industry to football or something or basketball and you think about it it's like coaching trees in football. It's like Bill Parcells gave us Bill Belichick, then he gives us a bunch of other people. And it's like That's exactly what Cannell did. All the people that trained yeah. under him went and ran, many of them went off and ran their own shows. Yeah, and then this Bochco, and then you get. Mm -hmm. And those guys, well, Bochco and Kenny Johnson went to Carnegie Mellon University together. That's how Kenny Johnson got into business. Bochco was older, he got here first, and Kenny wanted to be director, and he came out, that was the only guy he knew, and Bochco said, but no one's gonna give you a camera and free film. The way to get to direct <laughs> is to write something, and then you can ask to direct what you wrote. Right. So that's what turned him into a writer. Wow. Bochco's advice. Yeah, and it's, so it just the, the connections there now, and then getting to where you were, and then what was your first kind of big writing assignment then? Um, I had a partner at the time, and we were each assistants on different shows. Ooh, a team. We did, yeah. We started <laughs> out as a team, um, and she was on 90210, and she worked for the executive producer, a guy named Chuck Rosen, who is brilliant and wonderful. And um, the show was created by Darren Starr, but yeah. then he walked away, and yeah. so they hired like a regular showrunner, and this was Chuck Rosen, who came off of Northern Exposure, which is a brilliant, brilliant yes. show. Yes. People should watch those. Yes. So for my students listening to this, go find Northern Exposure episodes and watch them. They're quite beautiful. Yeah. And so Chuck came off of an Emmy-nominated episode and ran the show. And he ran 90210 because his father had been a surgeon at Cedars-Sinai when he, was, he grew up in Beverly Hills. Yeah. So what worked about that show, and this is my one of the assignments I always tell kids, um, you can look at the... The pilot is very cutesy pie, kids from Ohio living in Beverly Hills. Nothing serious. And Chuck Rosen was like, no, teenagers go through a lot. And just because they have money, if your parent is a drug addict, I don't care if you live in a poor place or a rich place, you have a, a non-existent parent. Yeah. And that is a teenage problem that we can look at seriously and that your friends help you through. Yeah. So he took the show really seriously. So um, my partner at that time then showed him like four or five of our spec scripts. He was almost afraid to hire us because it's his secretary he's hiring, and if she fails, he's going to look stupid. Yeah. Um, but after like three spec scripts, he kept saying, these are really good, these are really good, where's the next one? This is really good, where's the next one? And finally, another producer on the show saw him reading like the fourth one and said, you don't put regular writers through this, just give them an episode. Yeah. So they did. So it was the wow. 902 episode. And it was great for the future because it happened to be the episode where the Gabriel Carteris character went to Planned Parenthood. She was pregnant and she was deciding whether or not to have an abortion. 
And that was a serious episode of a teen show. Very special episode. It really was. Yeah, (laughs) right, right. No, it was just interesting. uh, Before I came over here, I was listening to Al Franken was interviewing Norman Lear. How wonderful. (laughs) I was was in geek out heaven listening to that. And (laughs) Franken was talking about, you just don't see the writing teams anymore because he came up with, him and Franken and Davis, right? Right, right. He knew since high school, and, and Lear got started the same way. He had a partner, too. And yeah. so it just struck me, the, the the connections there. And then, yeah, again, the industry just, it's pods that get created, and all these things come after it. Uh, travel together. Oh, yeah, yeah. I just interviewed Gloria Calderon-Kellett um, for a film festival thing that I was sponsoring, and she talked about working with Norman Lear. Her great story was when they went to reboot One Day at a Time, Yeah. he asked her, well, if it's a Cuban family, what would be different than the one that existed in the 70s? And she said, well, if I was divorced, my mother would live with me. So we'd have the three generations, yeah. and that's how that character was created. And then he said, well, who should play the mom in a Cuban family? And she said, well, my dream would always be to work with Rita Moreno. But that's impossible. Right. And Norman Lear said, I'll give her a call. <laughs> right, yeah. That's One phone call later, yeah. ta-da. There she is, right. Norman Lear can pull off that phone call. Exactly. Right? That, but because he spent how many years getting all these relationships? Because the business is about relationships. Yeah, no, and I and I think that's that's key to it. And it's something that, that I share with my students is, uh, and I had the dean of the film school I went to, I went to Columbia College, Hollywood in Tarzana, so don't get confused by that. Yeah. But I just remember Dr. Jim looking at the cohort that came in. Everybody at this table, I don't care what happens after you finish, you will know them, and that's your inroad somewhere else. And sure enough, even though I ended up on the faculty track, when I need a piece of info, (laughs) or like we were talking before, the pandemic hits, and I need to teach students how to work on a COVID-compliant set, I can call my buddy Jason, who's a location guy, and sends me this. So, or my friend that's now at Sony doing distribution. Like, hey, what's what should I have in talking about distribution or the business side of things? So it's it's very true on that. Um, also, y- you talked a lot about 90210 in in the MFA program. Picket, f- uh, not picket fences. I ruined my lead in. <laughs> 90210. Talked about lot, 90210 a lot and Touched by an Angel, but then I'm like doing my deeper dive, which is code for IMDb search. <laughs> picket fences. I love picket fences. I was like, th- it was quirky. Tom Skerritt was in it, but that's where Lauren Holly got discovered. Uh, so, what, how, so where's that on the timeline and how'd you get into that? And that becomes very interesting. Um, so we'd done the 90210, and now like, okay, what should happen next? And actually, here's a, here's a side bad story about agents. Um, we had a, that catapulted us into a ba- bigger agency. It was the William Morris Agency at the time. And um, th- we didn't know. We had a very young, hungry agent. We thought, oh, that's a good thing. Well, after we did the one show for spelling, the 90210, um, their development person called and said, okay, so now we have a couple of late-night shows. They were doing these 1130 shows. Um, we could give them a freelance on a couple of those this year. So it was a, it's how you train someone. Do I like them? Yeah. Do I want to invite them into my company? And our agent apparently said, oh, no, they've already done one of your shows. They're either on staff or it's nothing. And so the development person <laughs> said, thanks, it's nothing. And we, and we couldn't figure out why nobody there, and Chuck had um, retired from the show, so the second yeah. season he wasn't there to hire us. Um, we didn't know that until two years later. We eventually had lunch with a, a, this development woman, 
who was now working somewhere else. And we were doing our, you know, networking. Let's, oh, let's go to lunch. Let's talk about the business. Yeah. And she, we were asking her for advice. And she said, if I were you, I wouldn't be so arrogant. And we were like, when were we ever arrogant? And then she told us that story. Because your agent doesn't call you and say, right. I just lost you a job. Right. <laughs> we had no idea that you're anyone had ever made an offer. You're not going to have that conversation. No. no. So we literally had lost these Jeez. two jobs, which, so we like spent a year not selling anything, right. still being assistants, like, you know, taking meetings and all that stuff, not knowing why that had happened. Um, but then I was temping at Northern Exposure um, uh, because a friend of mine who worked there was getting married and she needed someone to cover the desk for two weeks. And I was like, sure, I'll do that. And met a producer named Jeff Melvoin, who is one of the brilliant, most brilliant producers in town. He was then only like a co-producer. He wasn't high on the food chain yet. And I was sitting in the office reading a book. I always advise people, don't look at your phone, read an actual book, because that tells somebody who you are. They don't know what you're looking at on your phone. Yeah. Uh, and he walked in one day and he said, oh, my God, I'm reading the same book. What do you think about it? And we started talking about it. So after this conversation, he said, you know, I'm writing a TV movie. Would you read it for me and tell me what you think? And without a beat, I said, sure, I have a spec script. Will you read mine and tell me what you think? Because the business right. is to get someone to read your work. Yeah. And he was, some people would say no. And I still would have read his thing because I still would have wanted him to see that I was good at analyzing yeah. scripts. But he said yes. So I read his thing. And it was pretty brilliant. There wasn't much to say. But there were a couple moments that made me bump. And I did kind of go through the, but can I tell him that there are things I didn't <laughs> like? He's like right. this guy and I'm like nobody. Right. But of course I did because the right. honest feedback is what you're supposed to do. And he was like, oh, thank you. That's really great. I never thought about that way. I can fix that. Yeah. Um, and meanwhile, I'll read your script. But I was only there for two weeks, so I also thought, oh, you're never going to re actually right. read it because right. I'm going. Right. But like a few weeks after I'd left, he called me and said, I finished your script. This is really good. This should be produced. Um, so we had breakfast and talked about stuff. And he said, you know what? I um, This goes into the secretary thing. He said, you know, I talked to the folks above me about letting you come in and pitch, but they don't let secretaries pitch. They have a policy that says, because they didn't want the secretaries on the show right. to be jealous of each other, which is all bullshit because every right. secretary is actually on their way up. Yeah. They're not there to get you coffee for life. Right. But that was their policy. So he's like, I can't, I can't help you right now, but let's stay in touch. Yeah. Three years later, he was running Picket Fences third season. Exactly. He called me and he said, I'm the executive producer now and I can hire who I want. Can you come pitch? <laughs> nice. Again, it's like show to show and it's building and building to get to somewhere. Uh, and then yours is an interesting path because you went from teaching to working. Yeah. And now, where are you? <laughs> I'm back to teaching. Yeah, now I'm the executive director of my own MFA program. <laughs> right, right, right. Where's that at? Stevens College. We yeah. do a program that's geared toward bringing more female and underrepresented voices into mainstream media. So it's low residency. People come to L.A. for 10 days. They do a workshop, and then they do everything else at home, which is great. But, um, so yeah. you're kind of used to the online. <laughs> yes, we're totally comfortable. And it's great for working people who aren't yeah. ready to commit to moving here. Yeah. If you already have a, a higher level job, like a guy like Glenn Mazzara, who always comes and speaks to my class for me, he's great. He was a hospital administrator, like 10 years. And he was like, but I really want to try TV. So he took the risk of, of moving out here, you know, with some spec scripts. And he ended up on a show called Nash Bridges. Yep. Um, and that's where he met Sean Ryan, who then wrote a pilot that he thought would just prove he could write really hard-edged stuff, and instead it sold, and it was The Shield. And he invited Glenn on to that show, and ta-da, ta-da, ta-da. So and, and then Glenn went on to run... Walking Dead. Walking Dead. Yeah. I, that was one of the best... Uh, we Season Fullerton has uh, Calm Week, which is amazing. So if you, if you want to know... Uh, here's my pitch for Fullerton's programs. Any of their programs is 
in the communications department. They've got this wonderful week just focused on communication studies and careers and stuff. Glenn came and talked, and I think for me, it's talking about the profession. You're already doing something, and it's hard to to hear him like, yeah, I was doing this hospital administration thing at the same time I was writing spec scripts on the side. I brought I'm him like, in. I'm the, right. I invited him in. Yeah, <laughs> and and he was just talking about, yeah, I was doing my, I think he it was, uh, he was talking about doing, I think he did one for ER. Yes, at that time, mistaken. that was the show you did specs for, yeah. Yeah, and, but and you used to talk about that too, and it's something I try to get my students to think about. Your your role in 90210 is you're the high school teacher, so you ended up, hey, well, the scenes in class. Right. One, I'm an expert. You know, I was sort of an expert at that, but also I took teenagers seriously. The tone of that show, you you didn't come in pitching kids on the beach having fun. That they knew that wasn't the show. I mean, I always tell people you have to study what does the showrunner think their show is. So, for instance, you know, classic The Sopranos, people would go in there pitching crimes. And if you talk to them, they'd say, no, this is a show, this is a family drama where daddy happens to be a hitman. So give me the family drama, and then we'll weave in how that will hurt the family drama. So, like, my assistant um, on one show, he got his first agent and um, I think his first writing gig because he wrote a spec, I always think this is so brilliant, where the teenage son of Tony Soprano, A.J., you know, Tony Jr., yeah. got his girlfriend pregnant. Very basic family drama story. Doesn't sound, you know, interesting at all, but now if daddy's a hitman and mommy is uber-Catholic, Catholic mommy, because the girl's pregnant and yeah. her parents are going to have an abortion. Yeah. Because why ruin her life? But Catholic mommy doesn't want her grandchild right. killed, so she asks hitman daddy to threaten the father to not kill. So we're right. family yeah. drama where daddy happens to be a hitman. That is a brilliant use of understanding that show. Yeah, there was something I heard John Favreau say once in an interview. Uh, writing is, you want to write what you know, but exaggerate it. Yes, yes. And, and it's something that I, I try to push to, on my students. It's like, it's okay to write what you know, but throw the exaggeration in. Yep, it's the what if, and for me, I've expanded that for my students. I say, it's write the emotions you know. Because yeah. that's what's real. Like, hello, Mandalorian. No one's ever, that's it. But what the emotion is, that relationship with the child and yeah. that obligation to help a child who no one else is helping. Right. You could be a social worker. That's an understandable emotion. Right. Forget planets and crazy guys in bars, right? right. But it's the emotion that travels. But you can start with the social worker and then like, all right, now we're going to make it crazy guys in bars and right. outer space. Exactly. And, you know, an action sequence at the end of it. And that kind of draws people into it. Totally. And it means that your stories are universal, even if they come from the very specificness. That's why Never Have I Ever is such a brilliant show. It's a, t it's a teenage show. It's a high yeah. school show. But we've never seen it through the eyes of an Indian American girl. And yet, which boy do I pick? Who's going to take me to the prom? These are very universal American high school experiences. Right. But so we're just the specific brings the universal. Well, I, when I was doing a lecture once about... Um, Parks and Rec. Uh, one the things I, I mentioned to folks, and I mentioned to my wife, who's had to deal with me in master's program while, <laughs> while we were engaged and dating, and I I said I'm going to ruin every episode of anything you watch because now she can identify storylines. Of so course, yes. We were watching Parks Parks and Rec, and I'm like, you realize this is about college, right? <laughs> These are people where they start and where they end. It's about going through f folks you know early on. In, to me, it felt like college. Yeah. Or it felt like grad school in a way. It's like, yeah. we don't know where, you know, they all started off differently. And yeah. so oh, yeah. 
it's it's leaning into those things and then exaggerating it, which again brings me back. So we're sitting here, San Bernardino. Down the road is University of Redlands. Yes. Where um, the Charles brothers yes. went to school. And one of them was bartending at a place called Gay 90s Pizza <laughs> uh, across from a bank. <laughs> and every day there's a dude that would come in. His wife would call him by the time bar was closing. And hence Cheers was created out of that. And Norm Peterson's character exactly. was kind of like, but you take... The little things of what you know. Um, just going into talking about writing TV drama, because uh, it's something that we're going to start pushing more in our program here. What do you think is just every time I hear the term breaking story, what what do you think that means when you're looking at a All right, what's, what's this episode about? I have to laugh because I we use that language. Every business has its own language. They just do. Um, but sometimes you've got to laugh and go, really? It just means we're creating an outline. Why did we have to invent this breaking? We're breaking something. You're not breaking anything. You're actually fixing it. You're making it work. I don't quite right. understand how that, yeah, I laugh. It almost sounds, it's like I'm going to do lunch with my agent. No, you're going to have lunch. What is this doing? You're not making the food together. Right. How did that become, oh, yeah, it makes me laugh. But it means it means having a group discussion over an idea where everyone's going to contribute what works for them and what doesn't. And usually, with luck, the writer, or sometimes the showrunner, will have the final say on, that's the way we're going to go. So it's really a huge brainstorming session, at the end of which we are all going to have agreed, this is the way the story makes sense to us, and now the person who's going to write it can take this six, eight, ten-page outline and go do it. And they'll understand it's a roadmap to yeah. what I expect you to come back, and you're just going to add your creative dialogue and fun stuff, but the path has been designed by the whole group. Okay. So then that's been created. Where, you know, on a, on a team, in a room like that, how does that break down into who's doing what? And then how do they merge those things at the end? Well, and usually, you know, the job of the showrunner is to, first of all, they get together. If there's a creator who's not the showrunner, which is maybe in like the Shonda Rhimes world, right? There's yeah. like too many shows to be in the room for every show. Yeah. So you have a showrunner who knows your style. So that person sits with you at the beginning of the year and kind of arcs out where are the major characters going this year? Just the broad strokes. This person's going to marry or the, get divorced or whatever the things are. And then the showrunner can go into the room with the staff that's been created and say, okay, these are the things we expect to happen. Here are some, some points where we expect them to happen in the year. How do we fill in the goal, th the gaps between them? And now who feels most comfortable writing a story where there's a discussion about an abortion, a story where a couple breaks up, a story where a couple is trying to get pregnant and is not having any luck, whatever those yeah. things are. And then they usually go with the strengths of the people they hired. Um, I was on also a show called Touched by an Angel, and they're being really largely an anthology show where these angels traveled around to help people. It would always be, oh, you're the musical guy. We want to do this musical episode. You can write that one. Oh, you're the sports guy. This is going to be a basketball guy's story, so you'll write that one. You're the person from the Midwest. You can write this story. You're whatever was your background. So the showrunner has to know what they think are the strengths of their staff, and pretty much they assign or if you've come in to pitch something based on this chart, you know where you're going. You say, you know what, I think it'd be great if in the middle of this moment this kind of thing happens. Well, it's a crime show, obviously. I've brought in this great crime thing I just read about. Then you pitch it, and generally speaking, you'll get to write it um, if the showrunner is a good showrunner. Right, right. 
You're but the whole room will still put together the outline with you. Yeah. And then you do the writing. You're, and you're touching on some things that I talk to not only my students about, but other faculty on campus and other departments, and certainly our counseling team here uh, with our students is like, I don't need everyone to go through my classes being a film major. Right. Because the collaboration that you're talking about are skills that you're going to use anywhere and everywhere. Um, the, you know, it, it just it's such a crossover. And we were talking about screenwriting. I always tell students, like, you might not go do this, but when you're writing a description, that's like, that's a Twitter, yep. that's 244 characters. Yep. Because it has to be punchy and has to be quick. Yep. And so someone might hire you to just start doing copy for them for oh, Twitter. Yeah. Well, when you talk about group projects, I have to laugh. My son is 23, and he just got out of college and got his first job. He's a PR guy. And um, after like a week, he called and he said, no one told me working was just one giant group project with a bunch of people you don't know. And it's like, <laughs> Why do you think people make you do all those group projects in college? Right. It's the soft skill yeah. that you're being trained in, not the details of whatever you were doing. Right, exactly. Yeah, because you end up, you know, that's what I tell the students as well is like, I always ask them at the beginning and uh, keep in mind, I've got students at a community college, freshman, sophomore, basically. Right. I'm like, what do you want to do? Well, I want to do five. No. <laughs> what do you want to do? You might not know it, but think about it and, and focus in on that because it's going to end up being a collaborative effort and people are going to need you to do certain things. And I think it helps. Because you knew I want to be a writer. You knew oh, at yeah. six. I don't care about cameras. I don't care about directing. I don't care about the sound. I wrote a scene once. I was tired of seeing uh, scenes where um, uh, you never see husband's help, which is where Kevin can go <coughs> himself comes from, right? And um, I was like, I, so I wrote the husband and wife, and they were loading the dishwasher together. And we came to film that scene, and the sound man was like, that can't possibly happen. Do you understand how noisy it will be to put dishes in? That's why you see people on TV washing them by hand and handing to the partner who dries them. <laughs> and so that's how the scene right. had to change right. because I didn't understand that was in need of audio. Right. I was looking at what is missing yeah. and trying to add it, and now I understand why it never shows up. <laughs> we can't but so that was, I didn't, that was nothing that I – that's why I also think it's good that students um, do study all aspects of it because the writer has to understand, I'm asking you to do something you can't do. Your technical yeah. world can't do that. Right. Um, I have to respect what you know and, and work, again, collaboratively. Yeah, go figure. Yeah, <laughs> in this world. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's something that uh, always just comes to mind is, is that collaboration and leadership skills that come out of it, I think, too. So going back to Roseanne, six years old in Cleveland, Ohio. <laughs> I'm going to be a TV writer. What was influence? What what did, what made you think you had the gall? <laughs> well, to be honest, in the very beginning, what do you think is you're going to be an actor? Because that's all you see. Carol right. Burnett. I must go be Carol Burnett. I don't know that people write those things for her. I think she does everything right. So then you get older and you start seeing the writers' names on the shows and you start to rewatch the Emmys and there were people being given awards for writing and you start to go, oh, that's really a job. But again, not where I was from and not right. anybody in my family and no, like, what's the, what's the path to that? And even my college had, you know, a radio TV film department that was stressed our local news stations because Cleveland yeah. is very famous for news. Uh, people who are anchors from other parts of the country come to Cleveland to train before they go to do, you know, the more, right. uh, you know, national things. So we had graduates who worked at some very major stations. So that's kind of what they stressed. And I was like, but I, I want to do the thing where they make up stuff. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, which required moving. It just, yeah. that was, so I did a lot of reading. Um, 
there weren't a ton of scripts that were available then. Now you could PDF almost anything. Yeah. But there were they would do things like the Academy Award uh, Films of the Year. The scripts would be bound into like an anthology piece you could buy at a bookstore. So I could read Rocky and these different movies yeah. that I knew and that I had seen. Um, so that was kind of like, you know, personal study. And then I read any magazine stuff that was about writers. And I realized, yeah, it's a job, but you got to figure out how to go get it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, now, it's inter- interesting when you talk about that because I was, I was the kid from Fort Wayne, Indiana, the Midwest. And I, I'd spend my, you know, I was the one that knew the Oscars before anybody else. Yes, <laughs> like, yes. I'd start talking about it. People would look at me like, what? I knew the TV guide by heart. I could tell you what show was on what night, on what channel, and maybe what was going to happen in it based on if it was something I watched a lot. I watched a ton of TV. When everyone said that's going to rot your brain, it's going to be useless <laughs> to you. Right? Obviously, it was my own personal education. Yeah. No, I mean, that was, yeah, that I spent, there was no outlet. Now, and I think that's kind of the amazing thing with where media has gone. But there was no outlet for me. I mean, there was a theater program in, in the high school. I mean, I guess I could have done that, but that's not what I was obsessed with. See, because I thought I, I did, obviously did do theater. Yeah. That was, that was the only place to go. Right. And then you could read the great plays, which was fun. Yeah. Then you learned Kaufman and Hart, and then you went and read the rest of their plays. And so that reading was its own kind of education, too. Yeah. No, so it, it, it is interesting because there's, there's a lot of the – I think some – like you said, it is a network of knowing who who's there, but so many people end up. You would think, well, how are how are they going to get there? And it's just kind of the will of it. Yes, you just you come and you have to do it, and you do realize that you're competing with the people who are already born here. Like when I worked at Cannell as a receptionist, the mailroom you know was full of PAs. Well, they were the the son of Cannell's heart surgeon. And the son of one of the other producers in the building and the daughter of some other connection. So, like, yeah, I was like, these guys didn't come from nowhere. They grew up in the business, and this is their training, right? And I respected the fact that they were starting at the bottom. Yeah. But, like, they didn't have trouble getting in the door. Right. You're coming and trying to get in the door. Right. 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 Yeah. Um, so let's talk about why the monkeys matter, <laughs> which I I love seeing on your social media. I was like, Oh, a book about the monkeys. Because, uh, and it was funny to start reading the book and your connection with it. And then I first started watching, and it's just the the generation. So the next generation that found them were on MTV. That was was me. And it was like, somebody had cable before my my house did, and we were watching the monkeys. I was like, I can't wait to get MTV so I can watch the monkeys again. So... Uh, I I think the monkeys do matter because then you fast forward to Rafelson and those guys mm-hmm. they did head five these pieces right yeah. yeah so how did you what it sounded like it from the book like you were just you were a big fan and then this is an opportunity to explore it but basically when I was a kid yeah that was probably my favorite TV show like at the age of six um, and it stuck with me it did win the Emmy for best comedy its first year so it was clearly a quality piece of television yeah. it was recognized as that. It only lasted two seasons, um, and so it kind of got forgotten. And I had noticed when I got into academia that there were a lot of books about analyzing TV very deeply, which I love because yeah. I did that as a kid without knowing yeah. it was important. Um, and I realized in this whole series of books, I wasn't finding anything on the monkeys. There was Bewitched and Hogan's Heroes and all these, like, 60s classics. Yeah. So, um, and I do love the monkeys. So I am on the editorial board of Written by Magazine, which is a magazine of the Writers Guild. 
And you can you can actually read that for free online. You should look it up, redby.org. Take a um, note. It's always useful. It's because we interview writers every, yeah. you know, movie and TV writers. But um, I wanted to see if there was any meat to this. And so it occurred to me, what if I found the people who'd written The Monkey Show and interviewed them for Written By? Um, and I was able to find six of them who were still alive. They were in their 80s because they had been in their 20s, yeah, you know, right. back in the day. And... Um, and it was really fun to go talk to them about their histories. Some of them went on to Emmy-winning shows as well. Coslo Johnson went on to um, Ronan Martin's Laughing and won a couple of Emmys for being on that staff. A guy named Peter Meyerson went on and created co-created Welcome Back, Cotter, which was an iconic show. Uh, and uh, he also was a, a true hippie of the period and um, told some very funny stories about parties at Peter Tork's house. <laughs> so I was talking to all these 80-year-olds yeah. who had done this great job of yeah. TV writing back right. then. And, and Treva Silverman was the only woman on the show. She went on to the Mary Tyler Moore show, and she won two Emmys for that. And she went on to do script doctor work on things like Romancing the Stone. Um, and so it was really fun to talk to them. And I realized in talking to them, there's a whole chapter in the writing of a show like that. Because you think a show like that was made up by the guys on set, which is not true. There's writers. There's right, writers right. all the There's time. There's always writers. And then I realized there was a lot of stuff to talk about the 60s and, and what kind of how it laid out that time for people, how in the 80s it showed kids. Rachel Maddow interviewed uh, Peter Tork after Davy Jones died. Yeah. And she said she learned what it was like to be a kid in the 60s from watching the monkeys in the 80s. Yeah. And that's the popular culture power of it. But there's a lot of meta stuff going on in there. There was a lot of stuff to talk about. Um, how it covered the civil, how it covered the civil rights movement in terms of its treatment of the two or three African American characters who came onto the show, um, just a lot of really. I just realized there was a lot of meat to it. So, and it was a great way to wallow in a show that I had adored as a kid and be able to tell people why it mattered. Yeah, I I just thought uh, well that it does touch on like your your first major gig, which is nine hundred two one zero. So. Teenagers. You're connected with this teen life. So when you're going in to write a book like that, where's your and I'm asking personally because I'm trying asking to figure for a friend. I, I'm try, <laughs> asking for a friend. When you're starting to write a book like that, where's your starting point? Because that's a obviously a large topic and like Yes. Yes. It's like I've just finished a book on um, films of the Civil War and kind of how to read those in the modern day and you know, deal with the lost cause and all that stuff. So I mean they always start with I wish I could read something like this. I, w I really thought when I started in The Monkeys, I'd find somebody had already written it. Just now, there had been a couple books about m the music of the 60s, certainly. Yeah. And there was someone working on them as a band. But nobody was looking at the TV show. Right. And that is obviously my background. So um, it started with that idea of, let me see what's out there. And then you, you create a proposal for a book publishing company. Um, and they have their forms in terms of you have to tell them what do you think all the chapters would be. And so you really had to think, is there enough meat here? Yeah. You know, And there is in a lot of topics there are um my cousin's working on a book right now she's a lawyer who deals with families who have children with special needs and thinking about how to advocate for your kid yeah and she was asking me about that same thing when i was home recently and she was saying and i said well you need chapters oh well there's the legal matters there's the medical matters there's the school matters i was like you you're just telling me you have chapters here yeah. so you sort of put that outline if you will together and then you present it to a few publishing companies and if she needs help with that book, she can. I can get her connected with my parents, who spent forty years working in special ed. So. Really? Oh, see, there you go. I so mean, clearly, that's a topic that's important. Right. Yeah. So it. So that was, you know, and it's it's just funny that I ended up teaching because I swore I would never be a teacher, and then I just happened to be teaching film. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and the thing about 
about books is that, you know, they're looking for content, too, yeah. just like everybody's looking for content. Um, the first thing I ever had done was uh, it was the Encyclopedia of Women in Aviation and Space. And that's because I was in a bookstore, and I noticed there were a bunch of books on the first astronauts. Yeah. We all know Alan Shepard and, you know, all the dudes. And I thought, wait a minute, there were like, there's a whole class of female astronauts yeah. that nobody knows, right? right? Barely can I get people to remember Sally Ride's the first American woman in space. Right. So I pitched a book on just the women astronauts. And this company came back and said, that's not big enough, but what if you did all the women in aviation? And so I sat down and ended up reading a million biographies of all these women. It's not just Amelia Earhart. There's a right. ton of them, including Wally Funk, who just went up in Bezos' thing, who had been part of this whole group of women who trained to be astronauts. See, and I barely heard about the, you just Mercury heard about 13. the you just heard about the billionaires going up there, but you didn't hear about okay. Yeah, no, yeah. the Mercury Thirteen was a program built by a woman named Jackie Cochran, who was yeah. who ran the Women Air Force Service pilots in World War II, women who took planes from um, manufacturing bases to Air Force bases, yeah. so the men could be busy taking them overseas and right. dropping bombs. Uh, she wanted women to be astronauts, so she paid out of her own private money. She was a millionaire for thirteen women to train in all the same things the men were doing. And, and women like Wally Funk and a woman named Jerry Cobb out-tested the men on everything, including sitting in isolation chambers for longer amounts of time, all the stuff that they were testing them for. So NASA got worried because they knew if they put a woman in space and she died, they'd be killing a girl in space, and they didn't want to do it. So they added one thing to the um, application for being an astronaut, which was you had to have been a military test pilot. And since women weren't allowed to be wow. pilots in the military at the time, they crossed well, them off the list. book sounds like a... Miniseries. <laughs> I tried to pitch it for a while. It didn't, it didn't go anywhere. You get a lot of ideas. You try to pitch that if you can't find the right person to sell. Like I just um, had Stephen Canals, who did Pose. Uh, he's going to guest in my class next week. Yeah. And I saw him do a lecture, which killed me. He wrote that piece, the pilot of Pose, in an MFA program. And it took him 167 pitch meetings to sell it. And he said, if I'd quit after 166, I wouldn't have a show. Hey, what was Charles Schultz kept pitching peanuts for like ever? Yep, yep, yeah. So and there's there's another lesson, kids. Persistence. <laughs> persistence persistence. paid. I had I had a student of ours recently. Um, the cool thing about our program is we get students that have finished the bachelor somewhere else, and they're like they get the bug, right? Right. So she finished uh, an associate's with us, and now she's on her way. She just started to apply for USC's comm department. And, but she kept bugging me about the letter of recommendation. <laughs> and I said, your persistence is going to pay off one way or the oh, next. You have to. I can tell you, when I was sitting there answering the phone at Stephen Cannell, it was like a year and a half. Um, and there were days when I'd be like, like, I had like 140 kids listening to me all day long. Like, I was the authority figure in their life. And I'm now cleaning up after the brunch that these people had and like doing nothing. Like, what's wrong with me except... I want to do this, and this is the only place to get this done. So I'm just going to have to plow through the stupid part until I get to. And a lot of people quit at the stupid part. Yeah, they're just like, I don't want to do that. Like, well, then you don't want the other part hard enough. So were you at that time too writing at all? You had to. Yeah, right. You, and actually, when I came to town, mostly females were writing comedies. That was a real hotbed of designing women and Murphy Brown. All these. That's where women wrote. So I thought I would write spec comedies. Right. But I end up in a company that does only one-hour dramas. Yeah. So if anyone was going to read something of mine, it had to be one-hour drama. So I started to write specs of those. Um, and then suddenly that's what you have to show an agent, and suddenly that's the job you get, and then you're a one-hour drama writer. Right, right, just like that. Yeah. 
Ta-da. Yeah. So what? So explain for some folks, because uh, spec. What what do we mean by another one of those jargony terms in Hollywood? Exactly, and it can mean two different things. Yeah. Um, it means, in one way, it means to prove you can write, you need to take a TV show that exists and come up with your own idea for an episode and write it. Because there you're teaching someone that you can take on the voice of another show and mimic it without losing your own voice. And that is very difficult. Many people can't do it very well. So you write spec scripts to prove you can be a TV writer. Um, it used to be for a long time that's the first thing that a TV show would read. And they won't read their own show for legal reasons. So you have to say, oh, if I want to write a, a, this kind of show, I need another show in the same genre. But I won't write the one I'm hoping will hire me. So you would do that. Now it's sort of the second thing they'll read. Now there's a lot of rush of we want to read an original piece to see what your true voice is. Then we have to read, can you tamp that voice enough to do my show? Because you can't do my show if you sound like you. Right. So a spec script is either your own sample of a TV show. The other way that that phrase is used can be if you write a script without being paid for it on spec. I'm writing a movie. No one's paying me to write it. I'm hoping that I will sell it. Right. So it is also a spec script. Right, which I think is uh, true romance for Tarantino. I think he wrote that on spec. But you're talking about reading. <laughs> make sure you're reading books and not your, your phone. And I just watched again for the hundredth time because I love the movie Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Where, you know, Leo's character's reading the book. And it gets, you know, Jodie Foster. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I let that secret out that the girl <laughs> there is supposed to be Jodie Foster? <laughs> it gets, it sparks up the conversation. Yes, it's true. I was at a, twice I've gotten jobs. The one was the, the Picket Fences because I read in the same book he was. And another time I was waiting for an interview and I was reading Harpo Marx's book, my favorite, Marx Brother. If you don't know who the Marx Brothers are, you better figure that out because that's one of those things that you know must have film literacy if you're going to hang around film people. Yeah. Um, and the person who came to interview walked out of the room and the first thing they said was, oh my God, Harpo's my favorite Marx Brother. <laughs> Immediately set a tone for right. us meeting. We, we had something in common. Had I been looking at my phone, I could be watching Cass play piano. Like, <laughs> how do they know? It right. tells them nothing about you. Yeah. But the book, will, is it a poetry book? Is it Maya Angelou? Are you reading a mystery? Are you reading... Uh, uh, Amy Poehler's book, so you're learning about the business. Yeah. Show them something that tells them who you are. Yeah, yeah. Now, it's a great, I got that same advice out of, uh, before the MFA program, we had a list of books that we were supposed to read. I read them all, and then I show up the first day and I asked everybody else and they said no. <laughs> and I was like, are, are we getting quizzed on it? Because if we're getting quizzed, I finally pass. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, it was Stephen King on writing. Yes, and it's he's a wonderful like, book. always read, always, always read. read, and and I think that applies. I, I personally think that applies to all aspects of the industry, whether it's writing, oh, yeah. acting, directing, production, whatever yes, it is. No stories, right? Know what you're getting into. Um, constantly study. I think is something that people forget. Like, oh, once I get there, I'm done. Nope. No, no. <laughs> no. Oh no, people who stay there, it's because they end. I always say, read newspapers. Read real-life stories, yeah. because when you go to pitch, you need six or seven or eight stories in the back of your head. I stole your assignment from my class. Good. <laughs> Important. I have them go through and, like, find, yeah, find a newspaper article and, and write up just a quick synopsis on what they would do with it. Exactly. Yeah. That is so, because that's what you do. How You have to be a font of stories. Yeah. And you're going to run out at a certain point. But if you keep reading stuff, you can, oh, that was a crazy, stupid thing that happened here. Or, Remember this guy? And then you twist it. Yeah. And there you go. And there you go. Well, 
I just want to say thanks again for coming. Uh, you're, you're kicking off my next season, my podcast, so I appreciate it. Uh, it was always, I always enjoyed Roseanne's classes. Uh, and so uh, I try to, I, I tell people when they ask me about my time at the program, and, and certainly I've hired some other fa faculty now that went through the program, and they say, well, what, it, like, not to put her on blast, but it was Amber's first teaching job. She's like, what do I do? I'm like, what did Roseanne do? Think Roseanne. Think <laughs> Roseanne. Roseanne and Pat were teaching us how to teach. Yes. That was, that to me was like, that that was the hidden thing going on there that I, I didn't realize until I sat down to write my first syllabus. I'm like, they were teaching me how to teach. I didn't know that. People so. forget that an MFA program qualifies you to teach at college. Yeah. And yes, you want to go do the other thing too, and you want all that experience, right. but it also means we're promising you can do that, so we have to show you how it's done, or you're going to look terrible, and we're going to look bad for having <laughs> said we, you were good at this. So you got a bunch of us out there now teaching, so uh, it did well. So I, again, I just want to say thanks for coming out, chatting with us, so um, be on the lookout for it. Thanks, Roseanne. <laughs>